What a wonderful blessing to be back in the house of the Lord, to be part of these summer lights. I, I think I, I must have done something right. They started me out at the first service down there, and now they've promoted me up here. <laughs> Looking at the schedule, I, I had some apprehension. These young men who will come to occupy the pulpit, um, as most of you know, I'm not what I used to be. Uh, things do wind down in life. And uh, I thought, well, after all, a dim bulb is better than no bulb at all. But we'll try to be somewhat enlightening this morning as I am a conduit like most lights. I'll try to plug into the Scripture for you and with you, and we'll find something that the Lord wants to say to us. I'm going to go to one of the most classic of the texts of the New Testament, uh, the first chapter of First Peter, a wonderful bit of Scripture. Peter, you know, is the most unlikely fellow to write like this. He was the one who, who was always alive, changeable, fickle, impulsive, undependable. He jumped out of a boat and walked on the water for a little bit. He told the Lord that he was all wrong on one occasion, and Jesus was quite serious about saying, get behind me, Satan. He was the one that vowed he would never de deny Jesus. And a few hours later, he, he told the people who confronted him that he, he didn't know this man, he had nothing to do with him. And he repeated it three times over. This man starts writing a letter to five provinces in Asia Minor, and you'd think he's a theologian. Of all the disciples, you wouldn't choose Peter to be a theologian. He was an activist, always on the go. His life was made up of busyness, he didn't have time to do that much thinking. But here's Peter coming to us with two letters, and he begins with Bible doctrine. Wonder of wonders. But he reminds us that if we're going to live a Christian life, we had better know the Scripture. And we'd better know more than just a verse here and there. We'd better know something about what the Bible teaches about the nurture of the Christian life. And so this is the way he begins, and we'll read from verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the great mercy, and his great mercy, 
He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the midst of your suffering and your grief and your troubles, you are joyous. It's a great journey of joy, this Christian life. Peter remarks in the first place about the very bases of our Christian life. And he tells us four different things about it here very quickly in a, a couple of verses. Number one, there's the new birth. You were born again, he says, an old term and yet a contemporary term, born again. We think of John when we think of it, the third chapter, Jesus and Nicodemus, and this wise man of Israel asking the Lord about the kingdom. And Jesus says to him, you enter the kingdom by being reborn again. You are passive, God is active. He brings you new life, he transforms your thinking which in turn affects your conduct. Your whole disposition reflects a renewal. You're a different person. All things are made new to you. A new birth. The second thing he says that is radically different than for other folk, you have hope. It's a new birth unto hope. Hope is a, a wonderful thing. We think about the past, memories, experiences. The longer we live together, the more common experiences we have, which is what makes friendship of many years so deep and profound and so satisfying. We can talk together about the old times, the things that fashioned us and shaped us through the years. We talk about the present time, the things we cherish, a wonderful free land in the midst 
of so many lands that suffer from tyranny and exploitation, people who are, are enshackled by those who would exploit them. And then there's the unknown future. And we hope, we have hope that we will enjoy, that we will find the love and the kind of, of life that we love in this world. I remember talking to my wife about this a few months ago. We were talking about hope. And she was losing her strength. Little by little, her heart was beginning to give out. And one day she said to me, you know, the doctor said to me today that I'm to do certain things and take some new medication, but he, he didn't mention this time that I could have hope. She said, don't I have any hope anymore? And I said, no, you don't. Not the kind of hope that a physician gives you with medical science. He's exhausted everything we know in this century. And now there is no more hope for your physical body. And she said, oh, I thought I missed something, but I'm, I'm ready. I know this is the way of life but I still have hope. I said, yes, you do. And we talked about the hope that we have that goes beyond hope, that new birth that gives us hope beyond the hope the world can give, something that transcends this life, that brings a perfect peace that we can go on with joy in our hearts. And he says that hope is founded in the resurrection. That's the third thing we have that's unique to our faith. There isn't another belief in this world that says anything about hope for another world with any certainty. And it's our inheritance, this wonderful faith. We've fallen heir to the most wonderful story that's ever been told, wonderful history that happened on this planet. Someone gave his life that others could live eternally, shedding all of the sin that brings us so much grief in this world. The resurrection is an historic fact. The Christian faith is based on years of history, not just the writings or the cogitations of some man who feels he's received a special inspiration to write about something in which, if you believe, you'll feel better. No, this goes much deeper than this. We have a new birth for a hope that transcends this world. It's the hope of eternity. And the fourth thing, as Peter says, 
we also have a faith. We've been given a faith, and God will help us by his power, by protecting us in our faith. And as he protects our faith, our, our faith protects us and our love for God and our trust in him. Paul puts it a different way in Ephesians 6. Remember, he talks about the, the armor that we put on as Christians in defense of who we are. And he says, faith is the shield. Now, the old ancient shield was a thick shield made to catch the arrows, fiery arrows. And when they would sink themselves into that, that stuffing of the shield, it quenched the fire, and it became useless as a tool of war to destroy. The shield of faith, the power of God preserving us in time of need with his presence and spirit, the testimony of his word, the strength of his people, the wonderful gospel that we celebrate week by week in this place. Peter lines up these things in his first few paragraphs here. And he said, this is the basis for the rest of life and living. And I would like to translate just a little bit this morning what this means in a more concrete way. All these doctrines and all these truths, these propositional statements that we have in regard to what we believe, this is all wonderful, but how do we translate it from the mind, the brain, the paper, into daily life? A life that is not always easy. Several families mentioned in our bulletin today in trouble in this world, suffering, grieving, losing. They need to know these things, says Peter. And he mentions a couple of things in the passage we read together. Let us look together at these things briefly. He says, in the first place, that when you face suffering, you do so for a purpose that God has. And this should be a comfort to you. And I have found many times that it's almost impossible to counsel someone in the midst of suffering as to how that suffering is going to be used by God. Because when we are suffering, we're in no position to listen to this kind of logical argumentation. It's not what is ordered. Something must be within us 
to hold us in that experience. And something must be in Scripture to give us instruction. Well, I've learned that what you need to do to understand Scripture is to do more than just learn some textual material. What you need to do is compare Scripture with Scripture. Look at the totality of what has been revealed. This is where Peter starts. There's a great deal that goes into the making of a Christian. And this is why we talk about sanctification in the Bible and nurture and the growth of the faith. We want to develop. We do not want to say, as Scripture tells us, that we're going to live with the milk of the gospel forever. Let us understand. And so we turn this morning to another Scripture passage, one that included the experience of Peter. Perhaps he thought about this when he penned these words, I don't know. But Peter was an elderly man at this time in his life. He was looking back at all that had happened to himself since he met that man of Galilee who called him from his boat and said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Your name was Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. Your name shall become Rock. And he became a rock, even though he denied Jesus later. And even though he failed to be honest about things and submit to the leadership of Jesus, yet he became a rock. The confession that he made, a confession that Jesus commented on and said, the Father revealed that to you, Peter. On that confession you've made, I'm going to build a church from now to eternity. Peter was a key disciple. He said, look, when you suffer, there's something you need to learn about it. God means it for good. And we say, how so? Explain that. Well, let's look at a, a time in the life of Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember the story. Peter's mentioned by Mark and by Matthew. Peter was one that Jesus said, couldn't you watch with me for an hour? But he took Peter and two other disciples further into the garden, left the other nine, eight at this point behind, and he prayed to the Father, and he said, Oh, Heavenly Father, my Father, spare me the suffering that is coming to me. Please, I want this cup to pass from me. I don't want to go through this. Isn't there another way? And the Father said nothing that is recorded. And Jesus went back to his disciples found them sleeping, came back a second time, pleaded with his father again. Went back to those disciples, still sleeping, went back a third time, said, Father, do something for me. Release me from this cup. I don't want to drink it. Nevertheless, 
your will be done. You, O Father, I know. You, O Father, are wiser than I am. You, O Father, the Creator, you know all things. In your mysterious power, you can turn anything into good. I'll accept that. And he did. Quietly, he went back to his disciples, wakened them to meet the soldiers who were coming for him. And he went through the balance of those days of misery through the cross, strong, ready to finish his course in peace. This is our Lord, a human Lord. It's not what we would expect to read about him, but like us, when we face suffering, we want some reason for it. Or we want God to perform a miracle and deliver us. Just about nine years ago now, I had two physicians of this church examine me. They found something that they didn't like to see in me and sent me to the hospital and did some, some work with an MRI and a few other things. And a day later, I was sitting at a desk in a doctor's office and he looked at me and he said, you're a very sick man. Well, for 71 years, I wasn't very sick. I didn't even have my tonsils out. Uh, my wife had been sick for years. I was never sick to speak of little things, but nothing of consequence. And this struck me as something I hadn't anticipated. I had no idea. He said, do you know how sick you are? And I said, if you say so. <laughs> I didn't feel like I was sick. You see, he'd put a, a stint in me that, that drained the poison that was going into my liver. and I didn't feel anything. He said, I don't think you know how sick you are. I thought for a moment and I said, well, so be it. What can we do about it? He said, 97% of the people that get what you have don't live very long. But he said, there is an operation I think maybe we ought to investigate, the Whipple. And that's what happened. Here I am, by God's grace. But I had to learn at that time what I'd been preaching for 45 years. And I've said to many of you, one day at a time you'll get strength. For the Lord promised it and he doesn't go back on his promises. 
God never makes a mistake, and if God is sovereign, he can do something about this. One way or the other, you're in God's hands. And I decided I better practice what I preached. And I took God at his word, and I want to tell you, it made life bearable, And as Peter said, you could go through it with a sense of well-being and peace. As he gave Jesus peace, he'll give you peace. When you ask, you will receive. When you knock, it will be opened unto you. These are things that he said, he's promised. It's his way with us. Because you see, Jesus went to his father and said, let the cup pass. The father said, I'm sorry. Well, I don't know what the father said, but it went something like this. I'm sorry, son. You see, there's sin in the world, and the wages of sin is death, and everybody there is going to die. And if you don't drink this cup, there's no hope for those people. And I love those people. At this moment, I love them more than I love you because you have said you're willing to drink this cup. Now drink it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us. And I never thought of it that way before. If God loves me like that and turns away his own son to pay the penalty for my debts and for the debts of those who do not receive him and reject him and have turned this world into turmoil and divisiveness and greed and sin, that mysterious love he has, no wonder John said, God is love. That's a strange thing to assign to God, and you don't find it anywhere else in any faith but in ours. What a wonderful faith we have. And when we do as we are told in the Scripture and believe, God does preserve our faith and carry us through. And in a mystical way, somehow he stands with us when we suffer as he stood with his son. And at the end, his son could exclaim, into your hands, O Father, I commend my spirit. If you really believe that God is sovereign, if you really believe he loves you, and if you really believe that he's good, then you will find an answer to that prayer that you utter for his presence. I can tell you by experience it's true. So Peter says, all this doctrine is not abstract theology. You can live with it. You've been born again to a new and living hope, and your faith will be protected by your God.
In verse 6, he says something else. There he talks about grief. If there's grief in your heart, if you go through a deep loss, he'll be there. You find that also in the garden. But you find something else in the garden. Not only a willingness to share with God the Father and the need to go to Him, there's another dimension to this. And sometimes we forget this. When Jesus went to pray, He said to those disciples, Pray with me. When he called his disciples, it's recorded that he called them to be with him. One of my Russian pastor friends reminded me of this. Jesus the man needed his Christian believing friends around him to support him through his grief. You see, there's a lot of statements in Scripture about looking to God in times of grief. But there's another side to us. It's not all mental. Much of it is emotional, feelings, relationships. And Jesus wanted these disciples at that time. And he went back and he said to them, you mean you can't watch with me for an hour? He woke them up and said, what's wrong? Couldn't you do this much for me? Just be there for me when I need you. And that's a wonderful gift of God, my friends. A few months ago, as you know, I lost my wife. Sixty-seven and a half years. Wonderful years together. We learn to love each other as husband and wives do in times that pass to that extent and with so many wonderful experiences here in the church, spiritual experiences. Of course it's a loss. Of course you expect it. But with a hole in your life, you crave the love of others, and what an outpouring of love you gave to me and my family. And I thank you. Just a couple weeks ago, I had a phone call from a man who came quite some distance. He flew up here, and we were talking together now. He was reflecting on things. He said, I have to, I have to tell you, I feel so bad I had thought about your loss. I had thought of things I wanted to say to you. And when I saw you for a moment that evening, I got through the line, and there you were, and I shook your hand. Momentarily, we embraced. But he said, I forgot what I was going to say, and I feel so bad. I said, look, I'll be honest with you. I don't remember what people said to me that night. 
but I remember their face. And I said, I remember you very clearly. What a wonderful thing it was to see you. You didn't have to say anything. Jesus wanted his disciples with him. I was supported when in need. I'm sure you can tell me dozens of stories about how people have stood with you, how much you loved it, appreciated it. That's the Christian community. And in verse 23 and 24 of this first chapter of Peter, read it, it says, you who love God, love each other and express that love to each other. That's what it's all about. It isn't a legislated thing. It's of the heart. It's voluntary. It comes from your meaning and your intent, not something you have to do. It's the way it is when you love someone. But what a wonderful thing when Jesus gave birth to his church and said the gates of hell will never prevail against a people like that. And I assure you, Peter's right. We love each other. Our faith will be strengthened and we'll be protected in it. It's a gift that we didn't merit, didn't buy, don't purchase. It's God's grace. We sing through many dangers, toils and snares I have already come. It is grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. That's our heritage, a new birth through resurrection undeniable power over sin and evil and a hope that transcends all of time. I trust there's no one sitting here this morning that will have to leave this place without that kind of foundation in your life. This is what life is about, dear friends. Good stewardship here. Witness to a world in need. But one day there will come the new heavens and the new earth. And the only light we'll need there is Jesus Christ. And we will reflect his beauty here and there. May this be your joy, and may you have that wonderful cure of your soul that gives you a journey of joy here and forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we could never have conjured up such a glorious gospel. Never have anticipated such love from you. We pray that we may be faithful 
that your spirit will lead us, your words will be reflected in our lives. Grant us your peace and the joy that fills those who know you and with whom you live. What a friend we have in Jesus. Thank you for his coming. Thank you, Lord, for being one of us. Thank you, O Holy Spirit, for your blessed guidance and for dwelling within us. Amen.